Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. We've been bringing you some amazing guests recently, from analysts to specialists, to first team coaches, to sporting directors, and even professional football managers. The TFA podcast is the perfect place for football fans to gain an insight into the behind the scenes of how clubs are run and why successful teams are successful, looking at the areas of the game that are often hidden from the public eye. The role of the manager is often the most accessible to the public. Managers are heavily scrutinised in the press and by fans in the stadium at home, online for every decision they make and every result in the role is often called the loneliest in the world. Today we have a man on that has experienced the scrutiny, that has lived the life of a professional football manager. This week I sat down with Dean Holden, the former manager of Oldham Athletic in the Football League and Bristol City in the Championship. After a lengthy playing career at a high level with many clubs across Britain, Dean moved into coaching, starting out with Oldham as a first-team coach before becoming the permanent boss and later returning to his duties as an assistant. In 2016, Dean Holden became the number two at Ashton Gate to Lee Johnson, now with Hibs in Scotland. The duo had an incredible run together, solidifying Bristol as a championship outfit and playoff contenders, as well as guiding the side to the semi-final of the Carabao Cup, beating Jose Mourinho's Europa League champions and Carabao Cup champions, Manchester United, in the process. Dean later became the permanent head coach of the Robins for a period of six months and eventually moved on to his most recent role as assistant manager of Stoke City under Michael O'Neill. After O'Neill's departure, Dean was appointed as caretaker for one match, which supporters won. Dean was very kind to take time out of his day to talk to me and discuss all the ins and outs of football management, and I know you all learned a lot from what he had to say. I kept Dean way over time, but he was a true gentleman who, who spoke so openly, and I can't thank him enough for, for, for his honesty during the podcast. Please leave us a rating on your choice of audio platform and share the podcast as much as you can. It helps us to reach a wider audience for as many people to learn from our guests as possible. So now, without further ado, let's go talk to Dean Holden. Dean, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. How have you been? Great to be here, Adam. I'm in a steam company, I see, listening to some of your podcasts recently, so <laughs> thanks for having me on. No, great. I've... Um... It's been, what, five and a half weeks, I think, since I left Stoke City as the assistant manager. So using the time as wise as I can, obviously doing a lot of stuff which you don't get to do when you're full-time employment. So, you know, taking the kids to school, to the hobbies, uh, being at home with my wife a bit more, all that. I've loved it, genuinely have. But the time is now right for me. Do you have that? Do you have that um, England to kind of get back into coaching straight away? I think it's just, you know. I did. Um, since the day since the day I got sacked from Stoke, I mean, the same when I left Bristol City back in February 2021 when I got sacked as head coach. I, it was like I didn't feel I needed a break. I genuinely, we might come on to, you know, the way that I behave off 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 the pitch, so to speak, and the way that I live my life and stuff like that. But I, I don't feel where it becomes so all-consuming 24-7 where I become this lunatic who can't relax and can't... I think I've got through life experience a decent enough knowledge of, of of being able to box things off. So once one thing ends, I feel pretty cool and ready to to go back in. So you know I've been around. What I found fascinating this time round in this last four or five weeks is you know you come across managers that I've met in the past, guys that get in touch when you get, you know when you lose a job, which is nice of them to show a bit of support and stuff. And they always say you know come in have a have a couple of days with us, come to a game, and you're never really able to take it take them up on it due to the nature of the job it's, it's as i say it's 24 7 so you know i love to get to games anyway even when i'm in employment so you know i've continued that but more than that i've been going around training grounds meeting so i'll give you an example i've been to see steve cooper for a couple of days um thomas frank down at brentford i've been to see me, me old mentor dean smith who was with at walsall so these types of guys have hopefully got a trip lined up uh, to go out to monaco to uh, to see paul mitchell out there i'm yeah. trying to, in the midst of trying to arrange that at the moment so just trying to 
And it's not always picking up loads of nuggets of information and stuff. It, it sometimes it's reaffirming when you watch them in their own environment, particularly for a day or two, you can really get a steer on, you know, the way that they take team meetings, the way that they, you know, as a high pressure manager, head coach, how they handle the rest of the staff, the way that uh, the rest of the guys behave when they're not in the room, you get a real understanding. And, and a lot of the time it, it reaffirms for me, you know, the way that I like to do things, the, the, the environment you like to create, you know, around the training, around the culture that you want to build, it reaffirms a lot of that when you see these guys at the top level doing it. So it's it's really. But, but did you get little nuggets then from watching them? And you know, you see, say Thomas Frank or Dean Smith doing something, you go, "Oh, I want to try that when I get back into management then or coaching." Yeah, I mean, Dean was a huge. Uh, when I was finishing my career as a player at Walsall, thirty-five, um, he gave me a player coach role, working with him the twenty-ones at the time, and learned so much from Dean because at that time. The way that Dean manages and coaches wasn't really the norm in football. It was very much still the, the dictatorship, sort of, I'm the manager, I'm going to tell the players what to do all the time in team meetings. I'm going to be the one to to voice my concerns and tell players all the time, here's what I want you to do. Dean showed me a different way, a lot of more question and answer of the players, a lot more understanding of what we were feeling on the pitch. And then to see, 10 years later now, to see the likes of, Gareth Southgate, who've got so much respect for, who, who, who's that sort of empathetic leader. Um, Graham Potter at Chelsea, for me, was was football-changing yeah. management appointment because to see the type of guy, and I know him a little bit, not don't know him too well, but come across him a few times, just the guy that you see behind the scenes is the guy you see in front, of the, in front of the media. And the way his journey has gone, and for him to get to a top, top-level club in this country, managing the way that he does with that empathy, with that... Uh, caring about his players, you know, showing the players that he that he supports them, and, and understanding the players really, because modern modern footballers are not not the ones that they were when I started as a player twenty five years ago. And I've got young kids myself who are teenagers, and understanding the person and giving them a why as to why you want to do things, and and, and gaining their insight into things in team meetings and stuff is the way that I like to do it. And to now see these guys, as I say, Gareth and, and Graham in particular, Dean Smith at that level, really gives me a lot of confidence in into thinking do, actually, it can be done like that. You know? Do you think that the maybe the football world still has a long way to go to understand that kind of, as you call it, the empathetic leader? Because guys like Gareth Southgate, and you see the criticism he gets, you see the criticism that Graham Potter got when he was, there was a time he was struggling at Brighton. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was the same at Manchester United. Because they're not, very imposing figures on the touchline. They don't scream. They don't shout. People almost look at them as lesser leaders. They want someone who's on this touchline screaming and shouting. And that's not necessarily what players need anymore. Do you think that the football world still has, especially fans, because they don't see behind the scenes, of the, you know, how managers operate, that they still have a long way to go to kind of have a better understanding of the way managers have now evolved. They're not managers as such. A lot of them are kind of head coaches, I suppose. Brilliant question, Adam. Yeah, absolutely fascinating story. They surround the disappointing thing for me when I was the head coach of Bristol City was in the middle of COVID. Not one of my games as a manager was in front of any supporters. So, you know, the first thing I would do, given another opportunity as a manager, head coach, would be get the supporters into the training ground. I saw Vincent Company do something uh, in pre-season on YouTube with Burnley. It's, anyone listening, have a look. It's fascinating. And the guys turn up watching training. It's not only that, they get an insight into what goes on behind the scenes. And they get, because they've had an insight, they get much more of an understanding. And you're almost educating the supporters as to the way that, that, you, that you work and you're right. Because I always remember that you'll remember Martin O'Neill. Uh, now, now it's Conte 
uh, Mourinho, top, top managers. But you're right, the game has changed. And, and being honest, as a player on the pitch, how much information you can hear, particularly at that level in them stadiums, how much you can actually take in from a manager's screen is not not as much as, as you would like to see, as, a, as you like to think as a supporter. I think it'll only take a Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp or one of these top guys to go and sit up in a stand, um, a little bit like Eddie Jones, uh, I know Steve McLaren and Nigel Pearson used to do it, but it'll only take one of them to go up in this because there's absolutely no doubt about it. You can see so much more from up there. It's a lot calmer. You're away from the fourth official. You're away from all the nonsense at the side of the pitch. And you can get so much more of a more of a yeah. tactical understanding of the game. But the supporters want to see this guy on the side of the pitch who's driving his or her team on and being, the, as you say, the dominant macho, I'm the manager, I'm going to lead from the front. So I think it will only take something like that for it to change. You have to do what you think is you have to do what you think is right, and you know again, you're seeing things coming out around uh, Enrique at, at Spain, the way that he's, he's coaching his players, and, and the way that you he's getting an understanding of the players and what it is that makes them tick, and it, they're all different. Remember, so certain players you need to understand quickly, and this is when you get to know the person before the player. That guy might need telling what to do. He might be the type of, of, of learner. But he needs he needs clear information concise, here's what we're doing. The other guy might need a question and an answer and he might need to find his own little way. You're guiding him as a coach. Of course you are. You're not manipulating, but you're guiding him. So it's understanding each individual within within a team unit. And again, I went to see Stuart Lancaster out in Leinster, who the ex-England rugby coach. Mm. Just because I'd seen something on on uh, in lockdown on YouTube about him and he's an ex-teacher. And because he's an ex-teacher, he's a master. And I love watching... And it doesn't matter if they're a, it doesn't matter if they were a musician or a or a bin man. Like if you're a master at something and you're watching them in action, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And I went to see Stuart for a couple of days and just again to watch him in his own environment, the way that he took team meetings, um, the way that he delivered things was it was different to the football world that, that I know. And it's not I'm not sat here trying to reinvent the wheel. Who am I to, to say that? I just think to to, to answer your question, a long-winded answer, I think. It has got a long way to go. I think you've only got to watch some of these all-or-nothing um, documentaries, but not the English football ones, which are brilliant, by the way. I'll, but by the way, the biggest leader of all of them is Arteta, isn't he? I'm so glad his team's doing well now because he gets a bit of stick for his light bulbs and his drawing. <laughs> and they're playing the, um, the, the the song to get them prepared for uh, going to Anfield as well. It was a bit... Yeah, but he gets the cameraman in, doesn't he, to mm-hmm. do the team. So you can see what it means to that guy. He's got he's got the players in the palm of his hand, and you can see the way that the staff, staff speak about him. What a fantastic person! And you've always got to have that bit of steel. And people say to me when you became the the, the head coach, having having been Lee Johnson's assistant for four years, what changed? And overnight, I had to I couldn't walk in the door the next day as the manager as a different person because not only had I been the assistant for four years, I'd played with some of the guys previously in my career, and they'd be thinking, "Who's this fraud? Who's this mm-hmm. guy that now he's got the title of a manager?" So you have to be true to yourself, I think. Even as far as people calling you gaffer and stuff like that, it's so outdated. Really. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's the, the, I was at the All or Nothing documentaries. The NFL ones, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, Jason Garrett, he's another empathetic leader. Then you've got Bruce Arians, who's a bit more dominant and a bit more maybe like a big Sam who, who gave me my debut and taught me so much. By the way, they've got so much to give still as well. It's just finding you somewhere in the middle. I, I would guess would be right, but to see them in their environment, and how they operate. And it's all about team meetings. It's all about the way. That, what's the point in taking a team meeting for the sake of it? The players have got to come out of it with an understanding of what it is that you want. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it's about. It's not about you standing at the front and telling them for 20 minutes and then the next day in the game, 
they don't put the game plan into it. The amount of times you hear managers saying, I've told them, I've told them. But have you checked that the players have actually understood? You know, that's the key thing in all of it. So, again, it goes back to a little bit of, of psychology and stuff like that. But that's what kind of fascinates Well, there was a report when Unai Emery was at Arsenal. I don't want to name check him because I'm sure he's, he is a fantastic coach. You look at his record, it's phenomenal. Every, nearly every club he's been at. But there were reports that when he was at, when they were doing team meetings at Arsenal, that there were players that would fall asleep genuinely because they were so in-depth, but they were quite mundane. How, what, what do you think is the perfect time for team meetings, if that makes sense? You know, the perfect length of time, what kind of information would you try to pack in? And especially you were a manager at the championship, which is, the, I mean, arguably the most hectic league fixture schedule in, well, definitely Europe, I'd say anyway. So how do you kind of, what's the perfect team meeting for you before every game? You know, you, you have a match every three days, you go in, is it 10, 15 minutes and what kind of information are you looking to pack in then? Yeah, I don't think it's so much about the time limit. I think it's keeping the players engaged. So to go back to Stuart, Stuart, uh, the night before the team meeting, when I went to see him out in Leinster, he, he, he prepared the video himself and he'd voiced over it on his own on his own Mac and he'd sent that to the players the night before so the players could watch it in their own time two, three, four times. He was talking over the clips of what he, what he saw that was good, what could be improved. And then the next day, he went through it again as a team. And because they had a game coming up four days after that, he went through it pretty quickly because the, the players had already seen it three or four times previously, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then he could then quickly focus on to the game plan for the next game. Um, you have to keep the players engaged. There's many ways to do that, as I say. I like to get the players involved to stop them falling asleep because I've got a pretty, you can tell, a pretty mundane mank accent, which... <laughs> I, a, I went no. for an elocution lesson once, and I can't even say the word, and um, I just found out, because I, I used to do a bit of radio called commentary and stuff locally, and mm-hmm. I just, I sounded like a fraud because I was, like, my voice would be excited when I just, I thought, I just have to be me. I just have to try and be me. So try and keep the players engaged as much as you can. We had a guy at, at Bristol City who's now at Ipswich called Kevin Mincher who... He's a performance coach, amongst other things, with psychology and preparing the team and all that. He was an absolute genius. And I mean that in every sense of the word, at taking a meeting, taking a team meeting and taking a group of players from from walking into the meeting to walking out, not only with great knowledge and, and understanding, but being able to retain that information and repeat that information time and time again. And again, they go back to it. That, that, that's the key thing. So he used to talk about chunking the information. So I used to have one-to-ones with him all the time in the afternoons and where he'd, he'd basically film me taking a meeting and then he'd, he'd pull me to pieces and nothing worse than watching yourself on TV or listening to your voice. It's horrible, but in order to learn, unless you get, you know, unless you get someone external to come and take your team meeting, you need to be, you need to be a master at that as well. So mm-hmm. I learned so much from him yeah, in terms of chunking the information into certain, where it wasn't too much where you're overloading the players. You might have a little pattern interrupt where you might talk for 15, 20 minutes around the previous game, maybe from a couple of days before. All right, then go and get yourselves a cup of tea and some, a, cup of, a cup of coffee, come back in, reset, boom, right onto the next bit. Loads of different ways of, of, of doing it. Essentially, you're taking that information then hopefully out onto the training pitch and, and just repeating and, and, and the players eventually just retaining it. Um, and then again, once they've got an understanding of it, it's about the players then going, going actually activating the game plan on, on the pitch, and that comes on down to problem solving and, and the way that you coach. And again, not always dictating. And we had a brilliant discussion on my pro license uh, six, seven years ago now around again about the rugby mentality compared to football. And, and a lot of the rugby guys were saying, "But you just stand at the side of the pitch as football coaches and tell mm-hmm. the players what to do all the time." And a lot of the, the older coaches were going, "Well, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we know." And they were like, "But." How do you know that the players, 
it's a little bit like, like playing chess against yourself, isn't it? You, you know, you, once you move something somewhere, you need to have a solution to that problem. Yeah. The players need to be comfortable and confident enough to, to take risks, not knowing that... Because, again, it's all right being... I'm waffling now. Apologies, this is what no, I No, 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 no. It's a little bit like when you hear managers say, we want to build from the back and we want to be a possession-based team and then one of the defenders or the keeper makes a mistake and, and then the lambasting them at the side of the pitch. How is that going to make the player feel? Is he then going to be comfortable to stick to the game plan? And it's, it's a little bit like... Mm. I always... I don't like flying and I particularly don't like turbulence. And I always think... When we're going through turbulence, if the if the air steward or stewardess abandons the trolling goes and straps themselves in, that makes me panic. And if we still carry on serving with a smile, maybe a little bit more rushed than it was previously, but the, that calms me down. And I think that there's a big sort of thing around coaching with that, where you can, again, you're never going to have the perfect game. It's never going to happen. Pep Guardiola would never be able to get, the, even with the squad he's got. So it, it, it's allowing the players to, not allowing, but giving them the confidence and, and being comfortable enough to go and, be themselves and be what they're good at. Well, when I'm listening to you, I feel like you really took to being a leader. So what I want to know now is, and I know I, I, get, I get one of two answers when I ask this question, was going into coaching something you always wanted to do then or was that something that you kind of just, you, you fell upon almost? I'd, never, I'd not really thought about it. You know, I'd, I used to watch the managers I played under. So I, as I say, I started off at Bolton Wanderers back at the turn of the century with, Colin Todd, Sam Allardyce, and then moved around different ones. John Hughes up in Falkirk was brilliant. John Sheridan, brilliant. Uh, worked with him a couple of times. Low Dean Smith, as I say, at the very end. And he, I never really thought much about it. I didn't know how much went into a training session. I didn't know all the hours that went with it. There was an ex-player of mine called Paul Murray, who's now the academy recruitment at Blackpool, and he was doing his B licence, and he said, if I can get enough teammates to, to want to do the course then the FA would come to Shrewsbury Town where we were playing at the time. Every Thursday afternoon, they'd come to us and we could sit in after training, after lunch, and basically box off the B licence rather than having to go on your day off to St. George's. Mm -hmm. So I used to travel in with him in the car. So sliding doors moment, I fell into the, the course, really. Did it and didn't fall in love with it. There's a lot of work, obviously, a lot of... Um, back then, I wasn't brilliant in terms of pen and paper and computers and all that. I wasn't great at school, so I've had to learn that. But... Again, if something grabs you, then it's got you on it. And once I started to do the practical, you had to do 16 hours of practical sessions in your own time. So it was then going and getting the youth team on an evening or under 12s, under 13s. Uh, I did it with some girls' teams as well. And that's where you start to make all your mistakes as coaching and, and you're putting on a possession drill and you know the area is not big enough and you're like, you're melting at the side of the pitch. Like, oh my God, what's... And you, you basically, you can read as much as you like in a book about anything in life, but once you actually feel it and have the emotions surrounding it, then... It's about then correcting their mistakes. And then I moved on to the A licence on my own back. Then I moved up to Scotland to play for Falkirk. And it was a brilliant course up at the SFA. It was designed, as was the pro licence, which I did, was designed by not only David Moyes, but Sir Alex. Mm -hmm. Had a huge uh, say on the curriculum. They changed all the curriculum around with a guy called Jim Fleeting, who was absolutely brilliant. And they had Mourinho on it. They had ABB. So it had a really good name. And living up in Scotland, I did it. Went on to the pro licence and then... Once I did the A licence, that was me. Then I thought, this is me. Because I, as a young player at Bolton Wanderers, I broke my tibia. I was out for 14 months at the age of 19. And coming back from that, I always felt like I was a senior, like 35-year-old player in a 20-year-old body because I, I just knew I didn't have the speed that I used to have. Mm. Physically, I felt if I, was ever, if I was ever exposed 1v1, which was a lot because I was a defender, I would struggle, genuinely would. So I had to learn then to become a really good communicator to make sure I didn't get isolated. 
So all my own experiences went into my sort of coaching journey. And so once I did my A license when I was 28, 29, that was me then. I was I was always wanting to be a coach when I retired or a manager. And I then had a bit of a midlife crisis about 32 and decided to do a referees course. <laughs> <laughs> Purely because I didn't want to fall out of the game of football. I don't know what else I would do. Like my wife says, what, like genuinely, what would you do? I so was was that was that so, in the back of your mind that one day you were going to have to retire? And what's next? This is all I know. You know, playing football. Yeah, I ended up. It's a bit of a sorry story. I ended up breaking me the same leg three times. By the way, never got a free, never got a free kick for any of them. <laughs> <laughs> the game's carrying on around me as I'm laying there, and I ended up losing about five and a half years of my career through through injuries. Um, I'm going to give my body to medical science, I think. When I, when I but so what? Yeah, once I did the A license, that was it. Was like I need to stay in the game of football. It's all I know. It's all I love, apart from my family. Mm-hmm. And did the referees course to if I if I can't become a coach, I'll stay as a referee. Absolutely hated it. Like genuinely hated every single bit of it. And luckily, then, um, as I say, Dean gave me the the first taste at Walsall. Lee Johnson took me to Oldham as first team coach, and then on to Bristol City. You worked with you worked with Lee quite a bit. What was it about yourself and Lee that, that clicked in terms of how you worked together and the cooperation of your ideas of football? So Lee came to Chesterfield on loan uh, as I was about to leave Chesterfield. So we spent about two weeks together as teammates and then never stayed in touch, never really with pals or anything like that. And then about two years later, he, he rang me up out of the blue and said, do you want to come to Oldham as first team coach? He just got the job. He was only, I think he was 31, 31 32 at the time, weren't he? And obviously he'd always, he'd lived that from his, from his dad, Gary. So, um, totally different personalities, really. Lee's Lee's an only child. I'm one of four. We used to we used to joke with each other. He's very the most driven guy I think I've come across in the game of football. Cares so much about it. Twenty four seven. Brilliant ideas as a coach. Like again, always trying to find an edge. Always trying to um, encourage the staff to to go on a course and to try and learn something new. He hates the idea of standing still and and, and sort of mm-hmm. being the norm. Again, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's, it's just trying to find a, a different way, I suppose. So I think that's why we worked. I think, and again, it, at times, Lee, Lee was the manager. So at times, he would take the whole training session. He would take the meeting. He would take everything. At halftime, he'd have, he'd have his set. And then other times, he'd open it up. And myself, Jamie McAllister, who, who were assistant head coaches, sometimes we'd take you know larger parts of training. Sometimes I'd then take the team meeting, going into the game. Macca might take set piece. And we, we sort of mixed it around. So it, it was never really like, absolute set template of the way that we worked um, but it was fascinating it was as I say I, I then moved on to I've jumped ahead there I, work, I only worked three months with Oldham because he then moved on to Barnsley but yeah we worked together for four years I think it was at Bristol City before obviously Lee uh, lost his job and then I was given the initially the caretaker and then obviously took over as, as head coach but learned a lot from him yeah when you were at Bristol I remember and you might not thank me for saying this but I, I I'm a Manchester United fan and I remember the 2017 League Cup, or, or, or 2018 was the 2017, 2017, 18 season. I remember, yeah. um, and I think he, you beat you beat Manchester United two one. Is that right? We did, yeah, in the quarterfinal. Yeah, I remember that. And then you went on to, to play Man City over two legs. How did preparation change for those matches? Before we touch on the rest of your time, because I mean, did you prepare differently? For those two games, because you're, you're, I mean, you're managing against, or you're coaching against two of the greatest coaches of all time. You know what? No, um, 
both of the, the quarterfinals, I think it was a Tuesday night off memory. So we pre- obviously played on the Saturday in a big championship game. Then we had that three days later. Then obviously we had another championship game on the Saturday. And the same for the two-legged semi-final against Man City. They were they were sort of in the middle of a big championship games and we were doing well in the league at that time as well. The reason I say no is because you'd like to think that the way that we prepared anyway, whether it was a, you know, with respect one of the smaller teams in the championship or whether it was Man United, Man City, as it was in the cup, that we gave absolute attention to detail. We have brilliant analysts, analysts, which again, I think is a huge part, can take so much weight off the shoulders of a, of a, of a manager or a head coach in terms of doing the, the legwork and then giving you the information again. Because at that point, you're like a player there. You might, you might have watched a, a team a couple of times yourself, but then the analyst is then imparting the, you know, their knowledge on they've watched this team four or five times. Again, it's about their uh, delivery of that message. And obviously, going into the Man United Man City game, we knew loads about them because you could you could catch them at all times. Obviously, yeah. match of the day, live games, and whatever else. So we didn't prepare differently. We I remember being anyone that's been to Ashton Gate. If you come through the main reception, it, it basically goes under the under the main stand. So you come in at like one corner flag essentially under the stand, and then you walk all the way down to the middle of the stadium. And I remember being stood halfway down as the team as the Man United team arrived, and we weren't sure if they were going to mix it up a bit and go. A little bit youthful, and they didn't. <laughs> I remember Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic started, didn't he? And he scored a great free kick. He, he did. He was captain, so I, I used to go in and do the team sheets before the game. So I'm in there with Bailey Wright, by the way, one of the greatest blokes I've met in the game of football. So me and him went in, and with, with Jose Mourinho and Ibra, and it was again quite a surreal, quite a surreal moment being in there. And you're thinking, right, we've got it all on here tonight. But the players, Lee's game plan worked an absolute treat. The players. As you say, we conceded just before half time as well. And then <clears throat> Corey Smith and Joe Bryan scored two absolute worldies. And it was a just it was a brilliant, brilliant night. And you know, Lee's career at that point was was going really, really well. And it was a it was what everyone at the club deserved. It was a full house at Ashton Gate. It was, it was, it was a brilliant night. Yeah. And again, the Man City game similar. We lost both games to a last minute goal, in fairness. So, you know, we gave it a good go. We going into the Man City game, we they had Mangala, if you remember, at centre back. Yeah an idea that he liked to take touches obviously again through through the analyst a bit of detail he liked to move the manipulate the ball in a certain way as he received it and we had Bobby Reid up front who was brilliant at pressing and we had a feeling we could catch him and, and Bobby did exactly that nicked it from him and um I might brought Josh Brown actually in memory and then Bobby got on the end of it got himself a penalty and Bobby took it away and again so close but brilliant experiences going in after the game I had Guardiola was booking my rucksack. I was reading it at the time, and I thought, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> like surreal. But again, it's brilliant experiences. You can only learn from that, you know. Did they offer you any advice, or did they say anything about how well you you played over the two late over the, the, the Manchester United and Man City games? Because we beat Man United in the quarterfinal at home, we were doing the live draw in the tunnel, and it was mobbed. So Jose Marino got himself out of there straight after the game. He had, a, I think, he had a good chat with me afterwards. But Pep was brilliant. Pep, uh, yeah, we spoke to him after the game. He was in there with, with Chiki and Ferran Serrano was in there. We had a good chat and you know advice around uh, coming to see them around the training ground, which we then took them up on. Um, and it's funny, you know, because about three months later we played. I think we played Bolton away at the, at the in Bolton. We stayed locally in Manchester, and, and our analyst went across to Man City to see Man City's analyst, who's now working with Steve Cooper at, at, uh, at Forest. Brilliant analyst, and um, 
there were two of them were chatting away and the City players had a day off and Pep popped into the office. He must have just gone in on his day off and he saw our analyst and he, he realised he was from Bristol City and he said, come here, let me show you this. So he took him into Pep's office and he started going through the game plan and he remembered all and He remembered like Frankie Fielding, our goalkeeper. He remembered Marlon Pep, our number six, who brilliant dictator on the ball. And he was going through scenarios of the game and stuff and it just gives you, I couldn't believe it, it just gives you an insight into, there's a guy again out in the NFL, he's called Sean McVay. Uh, the Rams coach, again, I think he's like 33-year-old, but they're constantly asking him, like, what about that play that you did back in 2017 against the Dallas Cowboys or something? Mm. He just remembers the play, like, <laughs> it's just, it's unbelievable. And Pep was like that. I think it's just, I don't know, that maybe the brain works a little bit differently, but fascinating, eh? That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. You remembered that as well. Um, you've been on the coaching staff for several managers over the past decade, most recently, obviously, Michael O'Neill at Stoke City. But I always ask this question to, to, to coaches who have been assistant managers or assistant head coaches. There's, you know, Eric Ten Hag and Mitchell van der Gag is his, is his assistant manager and they work together at Ajax. They work together at Manchester United, of course. Mitchell van der Gag, when he was a manager, was very defensive. He was very conservative. He was very you know, well-organized at the back, not so much going forward. Eric Ten Hag is the polar opposite of that and almost opposite, opposite to track in that sense. Do, do your ideas need to fully align with the head coach you worked with, or is it important to have different opinions on situations and on the game? Again, a great question. I think different opinions is is, is always refreshing. Um, in my time at Bristol, I brought in two experienced assistant managers from the FA, Paul Simpson, Keith Downing, both been managers because they've been there, done it. They were better coaches than me at that time. Mm. So I wanted people around me that were better at things that, than me. Uh, working with Michael was fascinating because Michael obviously worked with so successfully with Northern Ireland, got them to a place that they'd never been to previously. Um, and essentially, it was about not having the ball. It was going to Germany, Holland, these big these big teams with superstars and putting a game plan together where you can effectively nullify the opposition and then, and then try and win the game. And he did it so successfully. And then when he then moved to Stoke in the Championship, Arguably a, a big club at the, in that level with, with what we thought at the time a squad of players that, that could really go and, and have a go in this division. All his ideas started to come out then. That was fascinating because Michael himself was a forward type player, a winger up mm -hmm. front. He was very attack-minded and that's how he wanted his team to play. He wanted him to be expansive with the ball. He wanted them to play through the lines. Um, so it was interesting to see. And again, I think that's, unless you get a, bl a blank sheet of paper as a manager and say, right, who do you want to recruit? Here's a billion pounds. I think going into any job, like if I was to go into a job now in the middle of the season, you've not got any money to spend, the window's shut. You've got to basically play to the strengths of the players that you've got. It's all right having our old ideals of, of how we want to play as coaches, but I think you've got to work with the players that you've got and play to their strengths in which such time you can, you can move that forward and, and potentially bring some new players in. So I always think it's good to have people with, with different ideas. I didn't want a yes man or yes men around me. It's the last possible thing I would, it would horrify me to think that they were agreeing with me because I was supposedly the number one. Um, I think debate is healthy. Um, and what we did so successfully, I don't mean that in terms of being big headed. I don't mean that in terms of results. I mean, in terms of our relationship as, a, as an assistant and a, as a manager. I think working with Lee and with Michael, where we would debate really strong. And they respected me for, for giving my opinion. And at the end of it, sometimes they, they roll with my opinion and sometimes they make their own decision as, as the manager, rightly so. When you come out of that office door and you present to the players either on the training pitch or the meeting, you have to be aligned. The players cannot see anything between you because if you start to sniff something and there's a little bit of doubt, 
around the game plan or around the culture of the training, whatever it is, the environment, then you'll have problems. So there's a real art, I think, to being able to really give your opinion, maybe have it knocked back a little bit, and then, right, we're going to go in this way, this shape, this formation, right, boom. And then you go out there and then you, you're able to deliver that as if it's your own. And you've got to take your ego away a little bit. You've got to leave that outside and you've got to be able to really... Because the manager's the one that makes the final decision. You know, that's what I enjoyed so much at Bristol City is being able to have good debate and then, right, okay, here's what we're going to go with and then and, and, and move it that way. So, Is that something that you... that Kind of a, a, a part of your manager or your coaching journey that developed as a manager... So maybe when you were an assistant head coach in the early days, I think you were Oldham originally, would it frustrate you if the manager didn't go with your ideas or or were you always kind of okay with it? Was it something that maybe when you were a manager, you understood better? You know what? It didn't, going back to my Oldham time, yeah, I was, it, it was, I was 35 years old, eight years ago now. So it was obviously, a, it's weird because you become like an old player who can't run and then you become a really young, a young coach it's mad <laughs> it's like some like Anthony Big reversed um, you won't remember that Adam you're too young for that <laughs> you know what I didn't feel I didn't feel frustrated at that point I, looking back I felt a little bit I've just watched that Stephen Reid documentary if anyone's not seen it on mental health yeah. it's fascinating with Steve Peters who I've met a few times who I think just worldly brilliant but anyway I felt a little bit, almost a bit like that myself, quite a bit of imposter syndrome, whereby like, I've just been a player the day before. Yes, I'd done my BMEA licence, but I was a baby and I was learning. So, of course, I would always give my opinion. That's my, you know, I was always, a, I was pretty much a captain at every club I played for, PFA rep and all. No, so I was always happy to give my opinion, but probably wasn't as forthright at that point. Um, Lee, although he was young at the time at Oldham, was, was the manager, Tommy Wright, an experienced assistant. So I probably, if I was asked for my opinion, I would give it. It was only then when I moved to Bristol City where I had the confidence then. I felt like I'd earned my stripes a little bit. I think maybe that's just my personality. I'd actually gone out and grafted and yeah. put the hours in and gone to scout players all over the country. You know, Every weekend I was trying to get out and see someone and do this course and do that and just try and learn. And I think that, for me anyway, I think once I've done that element of preparation in my own mind, I feel ready and I feel confident and you can remove that little bit of doubt and self-doubt, which I think everybody gets. Um, and then it's just about opinions, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the beautiful game. I mean, you could sit here now and dissect one of the big games from the Premier League and, and have different opinions on it. And yeah. I think that's, that's what makes it such a brilliant sport. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, the difference of opinions, it's all, it always brings me back, and I always think of the, the Messi-Ronaldo debate, because people get so hot-headed about it, because everyone has different opinions of it. But it's, 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 it's the way you see the game. Some people see they, they love a powerful centre-forward, are really you know, lightning quick or maybe not anymore but one's lightning quick very powerful whereas Messi's more elegant and, and and then everyone gets so frustrated but it's just how you see the game if you prefer one over the other because that's the type of player you prefer then you're obviously going to think he's a better player it's so tedious almost to, to, to have that argument my sons my, as I say my two oldest are 15 and 14 and they were asking me this same question <laughs> It's funny, you know, you go into it when you go to an away game, particularly an overnight one. The players are always having in the physio room because the board, so they have the, they have their evening meal and then they'll be having massages and playing places. Lewis Baker at Stoke was a master, but every club you go to, pretty much, they sit there and they just play mad stuff like this, and it's constantly like, "What do you think?" And I'm like, "Well, my answer to this: if it was an individual sport, I could get it. Mm-hmm. Would Ronaldo beat Messi or vice versa?" But I always say, "Well, who are you going to put around them?" So, all right, then, you're going to give me a Messi, right? What, who are you going to give me around him? Well, it doesn't matter about that. Is it Messi or Ronaldo? I'm like, no. 
who's going to play around him? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You give me a, play, a team around it, I'll tell you which one I would prefer in that moment. And Because that, that's how I see it. I don't think you can go, listen, they're both world-class players. Why should we? We just love to compare nowadays. That's just what yeah. people do, you know? <laughs> Why? It's a social media age. It's awful. But the Messi Ronaldo debate's gone on for two decades now. It's it's just so tedious. Like I, I stay away from it. But um, you were obviously getting back to your time at, at Bristol. Unfortunately, Lee was relieved of his duties due to poor form in the in the league. And then you were made caretaker manager. I spoke to Brian McDermott two weeks ago, and he said that when he was made caretaker, he wanted the permanent job. Was that in the back of your mind that when you became caretaker, you thought there's a chance I can get the permanent job here? So Lee got sacked. It was two weeks before the end of the season. We had five games to go. And the very day before, as I say, by then I'd become worked with him for four years, knew him inside out and vice versa and, and become really confident in, in expressing my views. And we were playing a system which we'd, we'd suffered a few injuries and stuff. And the very day before he got sacked at the game, after the Cardiff game, he said to me, all right, then, smart ass, if, if I'm allowed to swear on him. <laughs> I get sacked tomorrow. What system would you play? And I said, I, I just felt the 3 5 2 would work with the players that we had at that time, not because it was a better system mm. or anything like that. And, and ultimately, the next day, we lost to Cardiff. Lee, unfortunately, lost his job. And it was, it was horrendous because he sat, you know, he, we addressed the players post game. Again, it's a quite a good insight, actually, for people that don't. And I've had this, obviously, to me as well, when I lost the, my job at Bristol City, like, addressed the players after the game. And then you sat around as a coaching staff, you're almost waiting for the opposition coaches to come in the lounge and have a, have a beer after the game and a chat. And then the assistant, uh, the chief exec, Mark Ashton, came and said, no one, no one's to leave. And then rumours and Lee, unfortunately, lost his job. And then he took me in the next room and said, you know, would you take over for the foreseeable future? As I say, we had five games in two weeks. So I had no idea if it was one day. I didn't know if they'd had a manager that was at that game that evening who, who did lined up. I had no idea of anything. So I took the game on the Tuesday night and, and then... Yeah, we, the five games went really well. The, you know, the, we got some decent results. And the longer that went on into that two weeks, I started to get more of a flavour for it and started to think, if I'm offered this, I'm gonna, I'm probably going to give it a crack because I actually, yeah. enjoyed it so much. I just I really enjoy empowering the players and, and the staff around the training ground and and essentially allowing them to be the best. And again, it, we all work in... It's the most incredible job, I think, because it's not a job. It's something that you just, you just love. It's not to say that every day you wake up and you're like jumping for joy because I'm in football and people have their own uh, personal issues and stuff away from it. So for me, it was allowing people to come into a, to a flourishing environment where they could be themselves. They didn't have to pretend to be a certain person because, again, football can be like that at times. And it was allowing them to to really flourish. And, and I did. I absolutely loved every second of it. And I think the biggest thing for me at that time, the owner, Steve Lansdowne, went on record as saying, we're going to scour the world and, and go and get somebody. You know, Lee had obviously been there five years. I think it was six years. Mm. And we took six weeks and then appointed the guy that was the assistant. <laughs> Cheers. I, uh, hope, I hope this doesn't sound like a, too much of an ignorant question. I'm, I'm genuinely curious to know. But obviously from the outside looking in, when I see things like that happen, I think how has the assistant manager managed to get the players performing so well, even though they were on the coaching staff. How did you, I, I mean, you were on Lee's coaching staff when he was sacked. So how did you kind of change things then so well to crack on and the players started performing well and you maybe change formation, but obviously formations are only formations. You still need performance. Uh, brilliant. I have to say that is a top question. I think for me, 
when you're on the inside, like I was as the assistant, it's easy because you, you obviously you've got to steer on the way that things have been going in terms of the atmosphere around the training and stuff like that. And normally when you take a job on like that, it's more, more often than that, obviously apart from my good mate Paul Warren leaving Rotherham there last week, it's, it's normally because results have not been great as opposed to the other way around. So I could sense the players were playing a little bit with a straight jacket on, you know, results have not been great. Um, there was a little bit of fear. You could see that they were they were coming from a place of of fear in terms of the performance. So for me, it was it was it was freeing them up. Um, and sometimes as an assistant as an assistant manager, when I was only ever myself, and so trying to empower the players, trying to give them so much confidence, trying to show them why I think they're so great and what a brilliant person you are. You know, as I say, that connection. Um, sometimes you feel a bit like a supply teacher where. Doesn't matter what you say if the manager comes in around it, and and then maybe after a defeat, you know, it's a, it's a things are said, and and the atmosphere can be a little bit negative, and and carrying it into the next game. When you become the number one, as I did then for that two week period, I think you just, I suppose it's only your voice. There's nobody above you in terms of that environment, the training ground. So essentially, then it was about me saying, well, listen, I genuinely don't care about mistakes. I genuinely, and they know that I don't because they knew me, they know me for four years. Mm. All I care about if you make a mistake is trying to do the best thing for the team. So talk about high pressing and counter pressing, gegging, but whatever you want to call it, it's a psychology shift because you've had normally you've had the ball, you've had comfortable possession, you're looking to to make a, a, an attempt on goal, and then somebody makes a mistake, gives a cheap ball away, whatever it is. There's a psychological shift there where you've got to then become all right, then I'm going to win the ball back now. And you don't want that player that throws his arms in the air and tells all the stadium how disappointed he is because. If he gave the ball away, what would he want from his teammate? No, he'd want his teammate to go and run and hurry and get the ball back for him. So that's all I spoke about with the players. It was basically stepping out of the way. And this, I've often thought about this when they say, what type of coach are you? And I think, well, I get out of the way of the players, which in simplistic terms means, obviously I have my own philosophy. I want my teams to build from the back, and but I want them to be progressive and play forwards. I want the centre-halves to step in and be positive. I don't want circulating around the back just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want the number six to get on the ball and make passes through lines. I want the eights to run beyond, not just come short and get on the ball and just have touches for the sake of it. You know, I want you, your wing-backs to make out-to-win runs to get in them inside forward positions and essentially get to the side of the opposite six-jar box, which is the assist zone, which is where Man City get to yeah. countless times a game. And it's about getting there not in one long ball, but again, if a team goes high press and you've got 2v2 on the halfway line and they look isolated with a slow centre-half, why would you not go long on one pass? Mm-hmm. So again, that comes back to coaching the players you know, to be able to problem-solve. So that's the philosophy around it. The players, because they know me as a person, and that's probably going in as a, as a coach or a manager to a new dressing room would take time because they'd have to, is he just saying this like most guys say it? Or do, and eventually they'll realise, I don't care about mistakes. I genuinely don't. Just show me how good you can be at winning the ball back. It's really as simple as that. And getting out of the way of the players, what I mean is giving them a structure. Obviously, there's a shape and a formation. Particularly without the ball, there's much more of, a, of a, the way that we're going to work as a team. But with the ball, go and express yourselves. Go and be the best. You come through school. To become a professional footballer is the, one of the hardest things. There's a point point one percent in the country. And there's a reason that you have got to this level. Now, you might be playing poorly, and the team's suffering, you know, dropping confidence, which is why the manager's probably lost his job, mm-hmm. which is what happened to me, obviously, at Bristol. But go and show what you are, whatever your purpose is. As long as they've got a purpose, 
whether it's for the family member in the stand, you know, whatever whatever their purpose is, as long as there's a purpose and a shared purpose between you, it's powerful. And that's what I mean by getting out of the way of the players and, and, and allowing them to flourish and not reacting too much to a to a defeat because again you can you can get promoted out of the championship with 15 defeats. It can happen. Yeah. They're 15 sleepless Saturday nights. And going back to what I said at the beginning, you know, how do you manage that? Do you spend all Saturday night, all Sunday, not sleeping? And there's a manager I won't mention at the moment in the Premier League who's clearly struggling a little bit with, with results. And you can see that guy on the screen on, on Sky Sports News. You can mute. You don't even have to listen. Mute it. Watch it. You can see the bags under the eyes. You can see that's not the guy that got the job. I had a suntan and came rocking into the new job and looking like management is dealing with pressure and basically showing resilience when you come under it a little bit. That's how I see it. And why would you spend all weekend not sleeping and overthinking? And again, does that mean I don't care? No, far from it. You know, when I'm at the side of a pitch, I'm not the Conte screaming lunatic because I believe in staying calm and actually taking the information and seeing it. You know what I mean? When I watched Bielsa, we played against Bielsa's team. I was, I was actually going to, I meant to ask it earlier, you played against, you, you coached against was, Bielsa several times, didn't you? He was brilliant. I was learning, um, good mate of mine, Andy Mitten, who was a big journalist down Yeah, Spain. he's a wonderful journalist from Manchester United. And I was learning a bit of Spanish and trying, and, and he knows one of, uh, one of um, Bielsa's assistants. So we played Leeds at Ellen Road and coming in after warm-up, I, I grabbed him and had a little bit of Spanish and he was about Andy and he was laughing. But when I watched Bielsa, he spends... 50% of the time, sat on his box looking at his feet. He's mad in it. We've got such a brilliant understanding of the tactical yeah. side of the game. He's just, he's a genius, isn't he? I mean, he is a genius. But for me, yeah, again, I'm just believing, staying calm, taking the emotion out of the situation, even after defeat and thinking, I'm not going to say something now that's going to really dent that player's confidence. Again, I think particularly managers that maybe I played for as well. A lot of the time after defeat, it was almost anger management for them. It was like, they'll get it out They'll shout and scream. Who's actually benefiting from this? Don't yeah. get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. There's times I I brought my hand at Rotherham away when I was managing the first day because anyone that's been in the Rotherham dressing room is metal, like like in a leisure centre, like metal lockers. And I just lost it. And I've ended up getting a big knuckle out of it stupidly. But one of the few times, because again, you're trying to show the players that you're in control and that you know the solution and you can help them find the solution. So again, we all lose our temper. That's not what it's about. It's having the steel to be a manager and make the big decisions and make the big calls, but actually do it in a way which is true, true to yourself. You well, Pep, I mean? so, Pep talks about that as well. He has openly admitted that. I think it was in the All or Nothing documentary, actually, the, the Manchester City one. He said that when players come to him, he doesn't have all the answers, but he just pretends. Because sometimes you, you have to just stand in a room and, you, you know, there's no point losing your head and screaming and shouting. At half time, if things are going poorly, he said he doesn't always have the answer, but he'll he'll try. You know, he'll try have the answer. Yeah, and that and, and again, that particular player is looking for leadership qualities from you, and that's where you've got to really stand up and be the leader. And again, another player, I'm using Marlon Pack again, one of the cleverest. Remain Sawyer's is another one. Them two will become, in my opinion, will become managers, like the way that they think about the game. They would like more of a debate and like their opinion because they they're in the game. They can they can sense it. They're like playing the game in slow motion in terms of actions on the pitch and, and tactics and, and how you can get beyond their press and stuff like that. So they wouldn't warrant and want to be told what to do all the time. But again, I think that's just showing and understanding and and, and taking the ego out of it again and, and showing that you, you know, you're know you a type of leader that, that, that will listen to your players. And again, sometimes they need telling, by the way, in certain scenarios. But for me, the, big, the biggest thing in football, when you talked before about 
institutionalised thinking is in a game of football, it's fine margins, isn't it? There's so many variables to a result. It could be a bounce of a ball. It could be a referee's poor decision. It could be, it genuinely could, couldn't it? And you're looking at, if you win a game, it's the happiest dressing room. More often than not, it's a day off after the game. Or it might even be Sunday, Monday off, and we'll see you Tuesday if you've not got a midweek game. And then on the back of a defeat, even having played well, by the way, the emotion of the defeat, right, we're in tomorrow, cancel the day off, we're going to sit and watch the game back over 90 minutes, and I'm going to go and lambast everybody, and kill that player's confidence. And again, it's only emotion. Everybody cares, but I think there is a different way. I think, as I say, you've got to manage the, the defeats in a, in a season. No one is really going to do an invincible again like Arsenal did, yeah. as great as that was. Um, it's keeping the ship rolling and, and navigating the bumps in the road along the way, which I think leads to a successful season, which yeah. I believe we're on, by the way, at Bristol City. And who am I to say after losing my job? In well, you weren't, you, you weren't that low down the table. You were 13th, 12th, which is... We were 13th in the Championship. We were seven points off the playoffs and we were actually joint seventh. Although we were 13th, we were joint seventh on points. Um, we'd lost five games on the spin. And as is the case nowadays, five defeats on the spin... Normally leads to, and there was things. But it's, going but it's not a crisis, though. It's not a crisis. You, you weren't, you know, you weren't battling relegation. No, and I wasn't able to. Steve Lansdowne, the owner, was in Guernsey because of COVID, as I said before. So I wasn't really able to generate. You know, I'm a, I'm a connector. I like to get to know people and and, and mix with them away from, not necessarily with the owner of the football club, but mix them away from the game and understand them really and show care and support. Wasn't able to do that. It was all Zoom and stuff. But, but that was that was the way it was. You had to accept that. There was also. Someone sent me a stat, it's a fascinating stat, and it's not excuses, it's just facts. But it was every match day squad, I think I managed 30, 30 league games, 35 league games, whatever it was. Every match day squad from the first game to the last had an average of eight injuries, first team players missing for injury. That was an average, and it peaked at 17 players. And we were going to new players who, who come in, and, then, and and clearly there was a conditioning issue from the pre-season before. It was a very short turnaround, if you remember that COVID season. There was only like a three-week break before you went back into yeah. the pre-season. Um, and I think a lot of clubs struggled uh, through injuries at that point. There was there was issues out in the press. There was there was players not happy with the way they'd been sort of treated and stuff and, and operations. And, and you, you're sort of dealing with all that. And, and the last thing you want to do when you... You know, so I'm trying to fix that in the background. Every press conference was was around the injuries, and I was trying to show, uh, be a good leader and talk around. We're going to solve this problem. This is not about such and such a person's not very good at the job or all that. It was about sticking together and showing yeah. that we get through it. And listen, when you lose five games on the spin and, and questions behind the scenes are being asked around certain departments, then you, you're clearly on a bit of a sticky wicket. Yeah. Um, what was the atmosphere like then? Because uh, I. You know, I'd like to talk about just a little bit about the the second, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. We always, I mean, again, I haven't been involved in a professional capacity in a dressing room, but you always hear the same cliche: he's lost the dressing room. They say it for everyone, regardless of who it is. The manager's lost the dressing room. Probably nine out of ten times, that's not really the case. Managers can get sacked for several reasons. But what was the atmosphere like then? Do you, you know, when you've lost five defeats in a row, do you walk in? How 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 are you feeling knowing that you've to? Again, stand up in front of these players, and you know you you don't maybe you don't have the answers, or how how are you feeling at that moment? You do you feel responsible, obviously? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's always on me. First first thing you look at is yourself. It's, I had total belief in the way that we work behind the scenes. I had total belief in the process. It's about the process for me. It's not about the, the result on a Saturday. You get the processes right, and you stick to your your principles, and again, you keep the environment as 
um, as high performance as possible, but again, with people wanting to come into work and put a smile. And it was really hard because, you know, our performance director was working with the AFL to, to drive forward essentially all the um, protocols with COVID. I mean, this was when people genuinely thought they were going to die of COVID. This was right at the heart of it in, in uh, sort of July, August, September, October 2020. So we were following, and, and I found out since maybe some other clubs weren't following the rules stringently, but you know, aside from travelling on sort of two coaches to an away game and then and everybody sat in their own room in an isolated hotel and none of the bonding and none of the stuff I wanted to bring, I wanted to bring yoga teachers in, I wanted to bring psychotherapists in, meditation experts, hmm. Wim Hof, if you've ever seen that. Yeah, before, the, the Cold War guy, yeah. yeah. All the stuff I've done, which has kept me on an even keel, um, you know, for the, obviously for the tragedy I went through with my daughter, I truly believe in it. And it is, by the way, it's it's science. So whether people believe it or not, it's down to them, but it does work. And I wanted to do all this and, and really create this slightly different environment around football and obviously wasn't able to because of COVID. And then again, you're taking, you're taking team meetings in a, in a freezing cold uh, tent at the side of a training pitch and in the middle of uh, Christmas, January, February, you know, th these conditions weren't happening. Essentially, you a bit like a Sunday league team who was training on nice football pitches and all the players would rock up in the car on their own with the kit on already, get out of the car, leave the, the phone and that at the side of the pitch, go and train, get back in the car and go home. So everything that would normally be uh, accepted just wasn't, obviously, all the bonding away from it. So no no excuses whatsoever. That was just a really difficult, and no supporters, and we, and we won. We went to Cardiff away, obviously, against the rivals and won. We scored too late. Uh, away to Huddersfield, Jamie Patterson, Jay De Silva. Well, these are great moments where you can really embrace the supporters and get that connecting. And for me, connecting a group of supporters and a team and a club together is and galvanising them is, is the most important thing. And so that was the difficult thing. So much to learn uh, from my point of view. But again, I trusted the process. I knew um, speaking to the players in the last 18 months since losing my job, I think, you know, nicely for me, a lot of them have gone on social media recently and said some good things about the way that we worked. And that, you know, that to me cements my beliefs that, listen, we were seven points out of the playoffs. We were 13th in the championship. We, we were on course. We'd had, the owner said to me, Steve, I spoke to him about six months after sec, after the second and had a good Zoom call with him. And a lot of stuff, obviously, which was, which was stay private between us. But he did say that, um, I'd almost had too good a start, which I thought was quite a staggering thing to say, really. I mean, how can you start too well? But we we came out of the traps and we were flying at the start of the season. We were, we were averaging two goals a game. We were up there in all the pressing numbers. We were, we were playing fantastic football. We only got to see some of the goals that we scored. And then through the Christmas period, as I say, it's, you know, things took its, the toll with injuries and stuff. But the only thing I learned, I had meant, again, I won't name check the managers, but top, top guys in the in the game that I respect. They were coming to me saying, like, you're being too honest in your interviews about the injuries. You need to you need to reset expectations. Because I just kept saying, you know, it doesn't matter if we've got 12 injuries. We're going to go with the players. Because I wouldn't, I wasn't always a starting player as, as a footballer. So I would have hated the manager to say, well, well, we'll go with this player because three three guys in his position are injured. So we'll go with him and we'll, we'll make the best of it. How would that have made me feel as a, as a yeah. player? I was just trying to say, well, them guys will get back eventually. We need to keep the train moving and stay within touch and distance of playoffs. And when we get the players back, we'll have a right good push. And, and they were, again, it was all about keeping the, the dignity of all the staff rather than trying to, you know, go in the public and, and criticise one of the members of staff for behind the scenes. That wasn't, that's not the way I work. Um, so I wouldn't, looking back, I, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have changed much. Although I did do a two-page dossier of 
chronologically from the day I got the job to the day I lost my job in terms of staff that I brought in, players, tactic, every single bit I went through and so many mistakes like, <laughs> wow, I'm surprised I didn't get sacked earlier. <laughs> um, but crucially, there's so much belief that I've got from that period of time where I knew we were on track. I, I absolutely know we would have been fine and we could have progressed. And you look at Carlos Corbran in his first year, others would have been the finish. Yeah. Chris Wilder lost, I think, four of his first five games. A guy I've got so much respect for, by the way. Brilliant mentor for me, Chris. And looking forward to seeing him go back in soon. Remember when he first took Sheffield United off, lost the first few So we apparently started too well. And, you know, you're in for manager of the month awards and all that. And you don't get too carried away either side. And, and equally, when we started to lose some games with all the injuries, you, you don't get too carried away. You know, we, we weren't scoring as much as we would have liked. We weren't creating. But, you know, you've just got to navigate them bumps in the road. And again, just stick to the processes. Just stick to your beliefs and that. That's uh, hopefully what I'll do next time, given a chance. I think before, so I just have two more questions. Apologies, I know I've kept you away over time, but I've just been so interested in, in listening to you speak. But Jose Mourinho spoke about, I think it was before he took the Tottenham job, he said he's a better coach now than ever before. And obviously, uh, when you first hear that, you think you know, you've, you've won a treble. How, how are you a better coach now? But it, it makes sense because he's had all these experiences up till this point he's won the treble he's made the mistakes he's learned from them are you a better coach now than you've ever been 100% if you want to said it then I was going to say the same thing through experience I saw something recently with Gary Neville where he was talking around the Valencia um, situation and stuff if he went in as a as a coach or manager he would be so much better through them experiences whereas the perception of maybe football club owners will be always oh, didn't do so well. I'm not using Gary now. I'm talking about any of us, but yeah. you know, maybe he's got sacked from that job. And actually, yeah, I am to, to answer your question. And I'm also, which I never quite understood this at the time, but I'm also, I'd like to think anyway, a better assistant manager having been a manager. Because mm-hmm. you get a clearer understanding of obviously that you're walking in the shoes, you know, you, you get so you can get an understanding of, Sometimes it's best to say nothing. I think I'm not the loudest guy in the room, although I can't shut up on this podcast. I'm enjoying chatting to you, but <laughs> I don't always have to, again, as a leader, as the manager, I was comfortable not always being the loudest. We'd have te- uh, staff meetings in the morning with the physios and the assistant coaches, the plan train. I didn't always have to feel I needed to be the, the main dominant, macho, loudest voice in the room because they've got experts around me you, you know, mm. want to listen to. So for them reasons, yeah, much better coach stroke manager now through... 43 years old through, you know what, through a lot of life experience as well. You learn so much on the coaching courses, but life experience teaches you, I think, how to handle, how to handle situations, you know what I mean? Yeah. The last question I want to ask you is something that I ask every guest because I, I'm always fascinated to hear the answers. Who have been your coaching inspiration? Who have been your biggest inspiration throughout your career? It doesn't have to just be coaches, but maybe one coach even. Um... I think initially, I'd have to say Dean Smith. And the reason I say that, I touched on it earlier, is because he's shown me a different way, which I've never seen before. So, again, work, fascinating working with Michael O'Neill. The, mm-hmm. the type of guy that he is, the empowerment that he gives to his staff, and he's put, loved it. Learned so much from him. But in terms of Dean Smith, I saw something at that time as a young coach starting my journey that I'd never seen in football before. And I questioned... It was only with, I don't mean only, it was with Walsall in League One. You know, can you make this work at the top level? And then, as I touched on before, you, you see Graham Potter, Gareth Southgate, um, Mikel Arteta, these types of empathetically, it can be done that way. And that gives me so much belief uh, that you don't have to change, you don't have to 
Because I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick story. I went to see um, Paul Nichols, who's the who's the champion horse trainer. He's if people don't know, he's like the Alex Ferguson of horse racing. He's won what is he won twelve seasons on the run. He's been the best trainer, and he did a talk in front of top military and and sports people. Him and Eddie Jones were there on stage, and everyone was asking him questions around. You know, when you've won your the seventh season running, how do you wake up the next morning and be motivated? And they were all fluffy questions. I had one question where I'd watched the Bobby Robson documentary and as amazing as it was, there was a bit at the very end where Bobby's own son was talking and, they, and he said, oh, my mates at school used to say, oh, what's Ronaldo like? And what and he said, and he genuinely said, I don't know because my dad doesn't really talk about it. He comes home and we don't. So Bobby Robson, wow, what a guy. I mean, and clearly Paul Gascoigne was, was almost like another son mm-hmm. to him in that relationship. But, it made me think, can you become, and this is what I saw in Dean Smith, this is why I'm telling you the story. I asked the question to Paul Nichols and Eddie Jones, can you be the very best in your industry as I want to be the very best coach stroke manager and still retain a brilliant family life? Can I, can I still be married, uh, happily married to my wife who I've been with since I was at school? We've had five children. Can I still be a brilliant father, a son, a brother? You know, all them things. And they both said no. <laughs> Outrightly. Um, and I went and, and I went to grab some lunch after it. And Ed, uh, Paul Nichols' sister come over to me. She said, I'm really glad you asked that question because that was the one that put him on the back foot. Everything else was a bit too easy for him. And I said, she said, you do know he's been divorced three times, don't I? I said, <laughs> clearly I didn't know that. That's mean lack of research because I rushed down, uh, down in Somerset and I rushed down that morning. But clearly he was an example that, no, you probably can't. Where Eddie Jones said no. And then he come and grabbed me, Eddie, at lunch and said, actually, I'm going to rethink that. When you're at home, i.e. your day off from the football coaching, just be present. Just be there with your wife, with your children, whatever you want to do. Don't, don't go off golfing for five hours. Don't go off to the pub where you met. You know, mm. you can make it work if you commit to. And that, again, gave me real belief. And again, Dean Smith, as well as being a top manager, Michael the same, Lee the same in fairness. The guys who work with all happily married, you know, good family life. So that's the key thing for me. You know, would I trade off winning multiple Champions League and being divorced and not having a relationship with my kids, no chance, not in, a, not in a second. Do I believe you can do both? I do, yeah. Again, you see it with Gareth Southgate, you see it with all these guys, so that's, that, that's, that's how I see it, that's how I see it, it's, yeah, for what it's worth. That's an amazing answer. Dean, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and I can't wait for you to get back into management. I'll be 100% rooting for you as we all will and I know the listeners would have learned a million things I, I've learned so much from just speaking to you you're an amazing guest thank you thank you brilliant thanks Adam thanks Dean I was extremely thankful for Dean coming on the podcast today he was genuinely an amazing guest he spoke so open and honestly about everything from you know the the, the great side of football management to the the downside of course you know being dismissed from his job and even listening to fascinating insights like, you know, the advice that Pep Guardiola gave and how Pep works and even speaking to Marcelo Bielsa. It was a, re- a really, really wonderful episode. One of my favourites I've done so far. I hope you all enjoyed it. I know I learned a lot from Dean. I certainly I hope you did too. Please leave a rating on the podcast. Five stars, hopefully. And I'll see you all next week for another very exciting episode. Goodbye for now. <laughs>